Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you are involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today, we're going to take a look at a very interesting book on libertarianism. Our guest is an expert on this topic. Professor Andrew Koppelman is a John Paul Stevens Professor of Law at Northwestern University, and he is the author of Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. Professor Koppelman, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you being with me today. Your topic is fascinating. Why don't we just dive right into it? Why Absolutely. did you write this book and what is the main theme of it? I wrote this book because I did an earlier study of the fight over the Obamacare uh, statute and its constitutionality. And I dis discovered that the opposition to it in the Supreme Court was based on a libertarian philosophy that is not in the Constitution that people were trying to read into the, the Constitution. And that got me interested in the origins of this strange idea that the way to promote freedom is to cripple the state. And so uh, I tried to learn about libertarianism, and I discovered that there are no books about libertarianism that are not written by enthusiasts. And it is, in fact, I think, a misguided and destructive philosophy. And uh, so I get try to uh, write that piece myself. I discovered that it actually began in a much more admirable form as Friedrich Hayek's effort to explain in the 1930s and 40s why central economic planning was a bad idea. And he was absolutely right about that. If you read Hayek's Road to Serfdom, published in 1944, you'll find that there really aren't any arguments in there that wouldn't be accepted by Elizabeth Warren or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Joe Biden that uh, what he's prescribing is uh, a free market, and he's trying to explain why a free market is crucial with a welfare state and a safety net and regulation to prevent harms like pollution. And uh, the overall framework is an extremely reasonable framework. And what I trace in the book is the way it, libertarianism has deteriorated into much more doctrinaire forms uh, of the kind that you find in Ayn Rand or Charles Koch. And Friedrich Hayek was a he was an economist. Is that correct? He was an Austrian economist who uh, lived moved first to the London School of Economics and then to the University of Chicago. And Hayek's big in, innovation, the reason why he eventually won the Nobel Prize, was because he showed that no central planning could possibly cope with the amount of information that a market generates. The only way to coordinate the activities of millions of people is a price system. And so he made a step beyond defenders of free markets like Adam Smith by showing this informational function of a free market. But he was arguing against the British Labour Party, 
which wanted to, influenced by Karl Marx, wanted centralized control of the means of production. Hayek was deployed by American conservatives against the New Deal, but it was always a mismatch because Roosevelt was never a socialist. Franklin Roosevelt never proposed to nationalize the means of production. And so the fundamental mistake of looking at social welfare programs and saying that they're socialism is a mistake that starts being made as far back as the 1930s. It's often said by people who are, are experts, I think, in this area, that Franklin Roosevelt, who, who was independently wealthy, he was part of the upper crust, if you will, the upper class, mm -hmm. held many high positions in government, mm -hmm. that type of thing, that the situation was so fraught after the, well, the depression, and then we had uh, really uh, huge unemployment, stock markets Ooh. collapsed, yep. the banks, many of them failed, that type of thing. Many people were questioning capitalism, and a lot of people were toying with socialism, toying mm -hmm. with uh, communism, mm -hmm. a variety of other isms. It was this, was this, factored in, I guess this played a large part of the arguments at that time, focusing uh, on the libertarian concept. Absolutely. Uh, so one of the attractions of having a social welfare state and a safety net right from the beginning is that you've got to give people, including the people at the bottom, a reason to buy into capitalism. And unregulated capitalism tends to produce an awful lot of losers. And kept Capitalism aside, any society that's a democratic society has to give everybody in the society a reason to buy into it. The people who are the least well off either have to be told this system is making you better off than any alternative, or you have to use force. Those are your choices. There's nothing in between. That's exactly <laughs> right. Yes. Well, today, as we look back on it, you hear a lot of folks say, uh, well, there is a, there was a libertarian party in the United States. I'm not sure mm -hmm. who still is. I, I don't know. It's, it's still there, but it's in deep trouble. It's in deep trouble, right? I guess Gary Johnson was the last candidate they had running for president. Does that sound right? Uh, uh, losing uh, track of the folks. No, they they fielded somebody uh, against uh, <laughs> Trump's reelection. Uh, I've oh, actually forgotten right. who it is, but Johnson was certainly the most successful of them. Got more votes than any libertarian candidate in history. And a lot of it was that there were a lot of people who didn't want to vote for Trump, didn't want to vote for Hillary Clinton and wanted an alternative, but it really was a very good place for the party to be. And uh, the party is now in deep trouble because it's being taken over by alt-right and racist elements that uh, you know, are uh, basically tearing the party apart. Would, would the people who are the QAnon aficionados, would they qualify? Some of them as well. Being although, a libertarian but, today? Yeah, although, although quite a lot of them are so devoted to Donald Trump that it's hard for them to, ima to imagine them moving into another party. Right, exactly right. That's very, very true. Well, how would you define a libertarian today? I know uh, so many people, I know, well, even I say every now and then, I say, well, I libertarian principles or ideas some i'm not a libertarian but the the point about how you have individual freedom mm -hmm. uh, you are able to chart your own course to a large mm -hmm. degree you're sort of the master of your destiny mm -hmm. that type of thing uh, but how would that 
is there some way to clearly define a libertarian today? Because these mm -hmm. terms change over the decades, over the centuries, really. Well, I think that there are two primary significations today that it's important to uh, separate. One is the idea that the purpose of government is to enable people to live the lives that they want to live, which is a peculiar idea in history, only emerged in the last couple of hundred years. And there are lots of places that uh, don't believe it. Uh, you know, the leader, the government of China thinks that the greater glory of China is the purpose of government. Uh, Putin thinks that uh, maximizing the Russian empire is the purpose of government. He's willing to be completely reckless with the lives of his own citizens in order to bring that about. Iran thinks that uh, the glory of Islam. Uh, and the, But uh, now, political philosophers generally call that broad idea that we are trying to uh, maximize freedom liberalism. That's what it's called. And it goes back to people like John Locke and John Stuart Mill. Libertarianism, particularly in American politics, signifies a specific form of liberalism, the claim that we will be freer the less power the state has, that the principal threat to freedom is the state. And so anything that we can do to shrink government is going to be a gain for human freedom. That's the distinct idea associated with the Libertarian Party. And that's what is generally connoted by the idea of libertarianism in American political discourse. And it's wrong. You can see it just a couple of examples uh, that loom large where uh, there's no right violation for the state to remedy. One is climate change. Libertarians have always had a tough time talking about pollution and figuring out how without a state we're going to deal with pollution. And another is COVID. The only reason why we have a vaccine that has COVID pretty much under control, not perfectly under control, but pretty much under control, is because the government raised a lot of money in taxation and pushed it into massive research in order to make available our uh, vaccine for COVID. Libertarians have a tough time with both of these cases, and I talk about them both in the book. Exactly. And the climate change is, in my opinion, the number one issue we're dealing with today, because if we lose our planet, we have no place to live. If it becomes mm -hmm. uninhabitable, we are just yeah, it is duck soup, to put it mildly. But you can't get another. You can't. That's right. It's, uh, I think it was uh, one of the secretaries general of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, said there's no planet B. This is it. <laughs> planet A is all we've got. But that's true. Now, as far as climate change, though, the market economy has a tr tremendous role to play in, in combating climate change. Businesses do, but they certainly could not take on dealing with climate change, Not nor would they want to. Uh, you've got to have some governmental entity, I would think, that would lead the charge in this, such as uh, the UN, which is not a government agency, but it brings together the 193 countries of the world to deal with this problem. But you'd have to have some structured approach to combat a problem that could eliminate most living organisms on the planet. Well, the basic problem uh, with, uh, well, one of the things that Hayek talked about, it's quite familiar to economists, is cases of market failure, where I mean, the reason why market transactions are generally good and generally improve human welfare is that it makes both parties better off. I sell you something because I want the money more and you want the product more and we both walk away happy. And so markets 
tend to satisfy people's wants. But if we're hurting third parties that are not part of the transaction, then we can't be sure anymore that the transaction is making everybody better off. It might be that we are hurting third parties more than you and I are benefiting from it. And that's the basic problem of pollution and why markets can't address the problem of pollution. And climate change is just a particular example of that. It certainly is. And I'm glad you mentioned COVID too, which we're going to get to in just a moment. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you have a podcast, you have a computer, you like our show and you'd like to share it, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're taking a look at a very interesting concept, libertarianism, and my guest is an expert on this topic. Professor Andrew Koppelman is a John Paul Stevens Professor of Law at Northwestern University. He's also the author of Burning Down the House, High Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. Let's, uh, well, before we get into the delusion and greed part, let me talk about COVID just for a second. You mentioned the COVID pandemic, and we had a situation where we had, it was almost like a schizophrenic government. We had President Trump on one hand, who in public said, don't worry about it. It'll go away in the spring. Go about your business. Don't think about it. In private with Bob Woodward, uh, at least one journalist who has it on audio tape, that he said this disease will kill you. It's very lethal. It's airborne. Then you had the other side of the government, supposedly the Centers for Disease Control and the health agencies and what have you, hospitals trying to deal with this horrible COVID and this influx of people. How did that play into this whole discussion we're having? Well, uh I think that COVID shows us both the strengths and the weaknesses of the way that libertarians look at the world. They tend to look at government as incompetent and clumsy and excessively cumbersome. And at the beginning of the pandemic, the Centers for Disease Control was all of those things. They uh, came up with their own test for COVID, which didn't work, and they wouldn't let anybody else develop their own alternative test because they thought that theirs was so perfect. It's a scandal. And uh, that sometimes happens. It is also sometimes the case that politicians lie. When Trump basically lied about how dangerous COVID was, it was because he thought that telling the truth would endanger his reelection. And he didn't really care how many people's lives he threatened if it was going to get him reelected. So all of those things are true. On the other hand, as I said before, the only thing that fixed this problem was big government. And the market was not going to fix this because the amount of research that was necessary in order to come up with a COVID vaccine was just too risky. And so the private investment wasn't going to happen because you needed to invest millions and millions of dollars with the possibility of no payoff at all. And some of the labs that were doing this were small labs that didn't have a lot of capital. 
So it's only because the United States government intervened in the way that it did that we were able to get uh, vaccines that uh, uh, I'm fully vaccinated, including the new covalent booster, and I hope you are too. Definitely. <laughs> Two shots, three boosts, and a flu shot, <laughs> most assuredly. And I've actually been mixing and mingling in crowds, but I still wear my mask uh, from time to time. In fact, more often than not, to be quite honest. Well, let me focus on the two words. Well, the whole title of your book caught my attention, mm -hmm. but the delusion and greed part. Mm -hmm. How do you, what, what were you focusing on in particular with the delusion mm -hmm. and greed part? Well, so uh, I begin by saying what's admirable about uh, Hayek's uh, intervention. Uh, and I say that it's been corrupted by delusion and greed. You know, corruption has two possible meanings. One is it just means that something's been distorted. If we talk about corrupted computer code, it's uh, just been distorted in some way. But the other possibility is that it's been distorted on purpose by somebody who's going to gain from distorting it. Uh, you know, a judge who takes a bribe is distorting his job description. Uh, and the way that libertarianism operates today is a coalition between, uh, I think, two very different groups of people. One is idealists, like I say, most members of the Libertarian Party, but uh, you know many others beside, who honestly believe that limiting government and constraining government is the path to freedom. And they really believe this. I think that it's a delusion, but they believe it. Uh, the other is industries that pollute uh, or that endanger their employees who would like to be able to carry on in this way without being bothered by the police. That's greed. <laughs> So uh, you could see it in the recent litigation over whether coal burning plants, which are a primary source of greenhouse gases, could be restricted by federal legislation. And the Supreme Court said that they couldn't. And, uh, you know, I teach in law. I talk to the people who supported that litigation. They really thought that constraining the federal government was going to uh, actually make us all freer. Uh, the coal plants, on the other hand, just wanted to make money. And so you got this coalition. Uh, it's very unfortunate. It, it is, yes. And as you mentioned about the fossil fuel industry, they're they're the main player in this. With mm -hmm. last I saw figures on, they have like seventeen trillion dollars in fossil fuels and coal, gas, mm -hmm. oil in the ground that they want to sell to people. And of course, mm -hmm. that's what's the main pollutant ruining our planet right now. Mm -hmm. So we've got to deal with that particular issue. You mentioned President Biden and President, former President Trump. How would you define those two as to where they would fall into a particular category, if they even fall into a category, as far as adhering to what we loosely call Democratic Party principles, Republican Party principles, Libertarian Party principles, mm -hmm. whatever, whatever that may be, or cross-pollination of them? Mm -hmm. I think that Biden has a much more coherent philosophy, and it basically is the philosophy that I associated with Hayek at the beginning. We want a free market. We want to have the benefits of a free market, but there are various kinds of market failure, and government needs to step up and intervene when one is confronted with those forms of market failure. And that's basically, broadly, a description of the kind of program that uh, he's been undertaking. In Trump's case, 
I don't think that Trump has any particular philosophy, except I'm a businessman. I have uh, friends who are businessmen who contributed to my reelection. I want to do them favors. And if doing them favors is going to endanger workers or endanger uh, polluting the air and water or is going to endanger the planet, I don't even think about those things. Uh, it's just not even on the radar screen. It's not something that I care about. Uh, Trump uh, is uh, very much in the model of the corrupt big city mayor who wants to do uh, favors for his friends and has no larger political vision at all. So I think it's just a category. He will deploy libertarian rhetoric uh, in order to, again, as a way of helping out his friends. But uh, I don't think that he really cares about principles at all. Well, he certainly did help them out with a $2 trillion tax cut mm -hmm. that we didn't need at the time because the economy was rolling along. And it's mm -hmm. been proven 87% of the $2 trillion went to wealthy people who didn't need the money on top of it. So there's certainly one case. Yeah, of there, yeah there is this uh, aspect of libertarianism that uh, it is always in favor of tax cuts. And that's an aspect of libertarianism that has completely dominated the Republican Party for decades now. And it's very difficult to see how we keep having tax cuts and tax cuts and reducing the tax revenue, yet people want their roads fixed. They want to have safe working environments. They want well, government regulations to make sure that they're not drinking poison water. Where where does this money come from? It well, no, no. The the uh, the answer is that you need to stop wanting those things because if uh, those <laughs> things are only going to be able to be delivered by big government, and if big government is the worst evil, then uh, you should be willing to have poison in your water because that's the price of freedom. Very true. Yeah, and that. That whole argument has really resonated over the last couple of years, especially with the QAnon crowd and some others talking about individual freedom. But so many of their solutions actually lead a path to a path that offers less freedom, mm -hmm. offers them less protection, offers them less opportunity, fewer opportunities to excel and to be successful. Mm -hmm as I perceive it. <laughs> I may be wrong on that. Yeah. It's just two warring conceptions of freedom. One is freedom is the absence of government constraint, which is the libertarian idea. And the other is freedom as the actual ability to live the life that you want. So uh, on the idea of freedom as the absence of government constraint, it would have been better if government, if we had cut taxes and government had had no COVID research and there were no COVID vaccine, because then taxpayers would get to keep more of their money. They would probably die sooner, but they'd leave a larger estate. That's right. Instead of over a million, however many died, we'd have many millions who'd be dead today. That's, that is quite right. Seems like what we really need, and I guess maybe we're striving for that, is to have a certain level of governmental uh, apparatus in place to deal with these problems, to deal with diseases, to deal with uh, foreign threats, domestic terrorism, which is a major problem today in this country, but it still hadn't been recognized, I don't believe, it, by some leaders. But to have that, but not have governmental overreach or you know, just bureaucracy on top of bureaucracy, as, and then still have a few of the libertarian principles about, well, you live, live your life, 
you choose your profession, you develop, you go to the educational institution you want, you have freedom. But by the same token, you have to have some governmental entities there to help preserve that freedom and to help to make you successful. Mm-hmm. Well, as I say, it's different philosophical conceptions of uh, freedom. One of the things that I do in the book is look at the most influential philosophers who have shaped libertarianism in the United States. I talk about Hayek. I talk about Murray Rothbard, the most important philosopher you've never heard of, really shaped the platform of the contemporary libertarian party. Uh, Robert Nozick, who's the one who's taken most seriously in the academy, and Ayn Rand, who gets read more than anybody else. <laughs> right. She is the face of libertarianism, it seems like, around the world. But as I recall, she denigrated government for years and then wound up on Social Security and Medicare or something like that. So she was certainly right there in line to get governmental services when they were available to her and she needed them. Yeah. So, But in our last minute or so, let me ask you what your book is extremely interesting. And I'm sure we didn't cover all of it, obviously. But what is the main message you'd like to leave with our viewers today to help them better understand this whole concept? Well, you know, I work in political philosophy and political philosophy is basically the genre in which uh, the book operates. You have a political philosophy, whether you know it or not. Uh, People have ideas about how the state ought to deploy uh, its force. Bad political philosophy can kill you. So uh, if you're going to have uh, an idea of uh, how the state ought to operate, uh, you ought to be reflective about it. And uh, the uh, and libertarian slogans need to be considered critically. This book aims to be an antidote for Ayn Rand, if you happen to have a friend who is overdosing on that stuff. And many people are, I'm sure. Well, our viewers can go to your website at www.andrewkoppelman.com for -hmm. more information. But Professor Andrew Koppelman, I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.